The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. It is time for Streetwise with former chief of the New York City Sheriff's Department, former chief of the Seagate Police Department, retired New York City detective, Time Warner Public Access Media Award, Joe Franklin Super Excellence in Broadcasting Memory Lane Award, New York Veteran Police Association Streetwise Production, host of Streetwise, Mr. Lou Tarano. Good evening and welcome back to Streetwise. You know, I might not open the phone tonight. I have so much to talk to on with my guest this evening. He's interesting, uh, interesting author. Uh, he has a book out now, Double Agent. You know, it has to do with World War II and how, uh, William G. Seabold and Bold, B-O-L-D's great for this, uh, I guess agent's name who's responsible. Uh, in regard to convicting a bunch of Nazi spies here during World War II, I think 33 is the number, and I hope I kill the pronunciation of the spy ring, the to quenches, but my, my, my guess will clear that up in a moment. But I want, I'm just interesting that, uh, the fishing line had mentioned that the, uh, some of our politicians want to eliminate the, uh, the name of the Fighting Irish, uh, not the Fighting Irish, there was the Fighting Irish 69, I was going to jump the gun, Notre Dame, the mascot is the, actually is the Fighting Irish, but there was the Fighting Irish uh, 69 in World War One, and they probably went into World War Two. I wonder what my guest thinks about that, because his name is Peter Duffy. Duffy, you got three great books out, well, we'll start with uh, the double agent, welcome to Streetwise, Peter Duffy. Great to be here, Luke. Thanks for having me. You know, I happen to be sort of a World War II buff, and I remember some of the things that we would talk about, especially in regard to your, your, the book, uh, The Double Agent, and some of the things they would say is uh, loose lips sink ships. Obviously, we had the uh, we so-called traitors in New York, the Rosenbergs, the husband and wife team that we that were executed there. There was so much going on then. But your book, you know, you'd make I tell you, you'd make a great detective partner. <laughs> you know, the research and and, and the, the the things that you uh, surface that would I would think would never surface if it were not for your book. But, you know, but, uh, before I let you speak, I just have to say this. Leading into your book, we've had so many uh, uh, known heroes, especially in World War II. We can talk about General MacArthur, uh, Patton, uh, and we can go to uh, England. We had uh, Bernard Montgomery, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, uh, and actually even uh, the Desert Fox, uh, Edwin Rommel. Even though he was German, and obviously he wouldn't be one of our heroes, but he was a popular military uh, theorist and a person that we sort of looked up to. And the, the nice thing I, I do like about him, he didn't get along with Adolf Hitler. So, but Peter Duffy, you have a book about an untold hero, William G. Sebold, and we would know about him. We would know the great work that he did in regard to the spy ring right here in America during World War II if it were not for Double Agent, your book. Oh, thank you. How did that come about? Um, so it's a, it's a, a, I was doing some other, uh, I was trying, it's funny, trying to remember how I came about it when I first uh, heard about it. I think what, what happened was I was looking around, um, 
there were uh, some spy, you know, very much interested. I was very much interested in, in the spies who were active in the United States mm. um, during the period of, just before we entered the war. So after the war started in Europe in 1939, we entered Pearl Harbor, of course, December 7th, 41. Um, and when I found out that, you know, the, really the biggest case in FBI history, the biggest espionage case in FBI history was a case that involved a single double agent uh, working to, to take down 33 enemy spies, and I wound up, eventually there would be some subsequent prosecutions, but that number would, would go higher, but the actual case that he that they prosecuted where he was in the dock and testifying as a witness on Brooklyn Federal Court, hmm. uh, brought down 33 spies, uh, I think they issued 33, uh, there were 30, 34 warrants, so they got pretty much everybody. Um, the When I found that there was a single individual involved in all of that, I thought, well, there, there's, there's got to be an extraordinary story behind that man and who is that man. At, at that point, hmm. when I began my research, the photo had never been published because uh, at the time the FBI refused to you know newspapers and such would not, uh, weren't allowed to, to use this photo and it's, uh, the FBI obviously didn't release it and they did everything they could to uh, protect him after the case and he really was the first person put into it they didn't even call it a witness protection in those days but he was, hmm. he was wound up he was set up out in, outside of San Francisco town called Walnut Creek, lived out there and was washed over by the FBI as he, as he grew older, eventually died in 1970. But um, the idea that there was a single individual that really nobody nobody knew about it, that, that's kind of why... Interesting, yeah. Now, uh, now C- William Siebold was a, actually a naturalized uh, German-American, right, Peter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, you know, I browsed through your book. Obviously, I can't read the whole thing, but I can grasp... Uh, you know, uh, why did he, as a German American, you know, uh, it was obviously, was he with the FBI before World War II, uh, Peter Duffy? Well, it was, well, no, he was, I mean, he wasn't, uh, no, he didn't get into it until 1940. We weren't in. 40. We were not in the uh, war. Yeah, we, we weren't in the war, but, but yes. the war had begun, yeah. Right. But we had spies here in America, even though we were not in the war. There was. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And so we were infiltrating, or William G. Siebold was, this spy ring prior to us entering World War II, right? Yeah, that's true. Mm. So. It, it was very, you know, it was, it, it, to me, it's really the, 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 at the time in 1940, so he wrote, the story is basically for your listeners is that um, Bill Siebold, William G. Siebold, Wilhelm Gottlieb Siebold, German or yes. Diebold, um, but uh, here they Seabold, S-E-E-E-O-L-D. Um, he he came to this country and he, he was naturalized. Um, lived in Yorkville, up in the uh, Upper East Side, the, then which was called very, Germantown at that time. Yeah, Germantown, very German in those days. There's some bare traces of of Germanness up there. A restaurant in the Heidelberg on Second Avenue, but mostly mm. it's uh, it, it's gone. Um, but back in the 30s, it was extremely thriving German neighborhood, German-American neighborhood. He lived up there. And uh, it was at a time in the 30s after Hitler came to power where there were a lot of pro-Nazi sympathizers 
Yes. A front group in the United States that had been originally called, called the Friends of the New Germany. It became the German American Bund. And they wore uniforms and marched down 86th Street. Um, the, he, however, Seabold was not into that. And he, when he became a naturalized citizen, and, um, took very seriously the, the, the oath, decided the oath in lower Manhattan and became a citizen. And, you know, in those days, Taking a load, an oath, an oath was a different, different, it was a very, very, uh, big deal in society, I think, today. For some people it is, but not for everybody. Uh, for him it was, it really meant something with that. Um, he took it very, very seriously and he went, in 1939, went to, back to Germany to visit his mother. Uh-huh. And while he was there, as he was going through customs, um, they asked him what, what kind of work he had done at a, at a point in his life. He was very wandering. Fellow, although he lived in Yorkville, he, he did mm-hmm. wander throughout the country and had a lot of different jobs. One of the jobs he had was working at a, a U.S. military aircraft, uh, US, oh. a, a company in uh, California that built U.S. military seaplanes. Um, and when the Germans saw that, they immediately realized that he helped them. And eventually, they came around and, and uh, recruited him to, to be the center of. To be a messenger for, for their spy ring, they needed someone yes. who speak English, someone who could live in the United States, someone who German. He had been a he was a veteran of World War One, um, just like Hitler was. They actually served basically at about the same time. Now he was a veteran in the in the German army, World War One. In the German army, yeah, yeah he was in the tre- he was in the trenches. He was gassed in the trenches. Well, interesting. And um, he, so that was a big uh, mark in his favor hmm. for, the, for the Nazis. But at that point, they were desperate to get somebody to to the United States because they were worried at that point that the, that the Americans were going to get into the war and then they would be everything would be closed off and they wouldn't be able to have a base uh, to communicate with their spies there. So they needed someone they could set up. And, and he was he was coerced, basically forced into serving for the Germans. And even before he left Germany, he had told the consulate, alone uh, he had gone there secretly and. Said that I want to be met. Now, was he getting uh, Peter Duffy? Was he getting paid by uh, the, uh, Germany at the time when they were when he was like uh, an agent for them at that also? Yeah, I mean, he was. Yeah, he was provided with his uh, uh, you know living expenses. He was he was trained in a uh, spy school. Mm. Um, yeah, he was provided with funds when he came to this country, right? Um, which he taped on him, strapped him, got his clothing. Um, um, so yeah, he was like a full-fledged employee of the of the Abwehr, the German military intelligence. Hmm. Just uh, you know, you know, uh, my 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 father worked, and even though he was in World War One, in World War One and World War Two, in between that he worked at, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where they were also building ships like they were in California, and he that, that's where he would would pass on. Well, that's why they would pass on. They would say uh, loose lips. Sink ships. They couldn't talk about what they were doing to anybody. They went to the barber shop. They couldn't discuss their job. And because uh, you mentioned in your book that uh, William G. Seabold was actually getting information from our uh, from our sailors, our U.S. sailors, when they were coming back home. Correct? Yeah. Well, he, 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 what was happening was that the, well, that, they were Germans actually, German Americans, the German nationals who were working on. Uh, U.S. flagged uh, 
a passenger line. Mm. Uh, the, in those days, the uh, you know the main obviously the main way in which to get across the ocean uh, was was by passenger liner. Um, there were some uh, transatlantic air flights, but that was very rare. It was for only the most exclusive and wealthy of people. Right. Most, mostly took, people took the took passenger line even in even decades, even into the fifties. Um, the and what the Germans wound up. So well, we we our U.S. liners um, um, often would had a lot of Germans working on the, in, the, in the kitchen staff and the stewards, and um, many of them or some of them, I say many, but there were some of them who wound up with the Germans. And he, they would take they would they would meet with Nazi agents uh-huh. um, in you know it depends on what point of the story, but at a certain point when the as the war was going along, after Italy came, came into the war, we were being, uh, they were going to, uh, the ships were going to Lisbon, so they would meet with the Nazi agents in Lisbon right. and bring back messages to Seabolt, who was back in New York at that time. And this was at a point before they set up a, a, a radio. I think uh, we mentioned radio, they were using shortwave, is that right, at the time? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. They didn't have the social media stuff we have today, so... <laughs> Yeah, uh, but how did you get? You know, it's 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 so interesting. And uh, again, not to be repetitious, but how would we know about William G. Siebel? How would we know he was such a hero and and the work that we done? I mean, how would? Uh, of course, he had to, he had to be uh, hiding, I, I guess, in, incognito. And I think he was also in a, in a program that the, he left like a, like a witness protection program, pretty much like the the uh, mafia. You know, when they they flip somebody or he gives up, you know, his, his uh, fellow gangsters. I mean, I, I think, wasn't he put in, in sort of a, a an area like that himself, Peter? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, you know, they didn't even use that, that term yet. Correct. Um, and it was just, they were, and in fact, the Germans wanted to, wanted to uh, get him. There was, well, you know, they, after they had wrapped up this huge spy ring, and Seabold was very well-known Germany for having done it, Whoa. and um, they had and they had no spy operation, no real, real uh, network in which to rely on once the war, once we got involved. Right. So the Germans had to send over uh, uh, agents in U-boats, U-boats. They did that right here in Long Island, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of one of their missions was to get was to get Seabold, was to was to was to exact revenge upon him. Oh. Um, yeah, so they, they from California, and, and they watched on him. Uh, or they kept watch on him, like wound up got getting the FBI files of all the times they went out and visited him through the years. He slowly became uh, he had mental health problems eventually. Mental health problems. Yeah, eventually went crazy. He was, he was a manic depressive. Eventually died in a Napa State Hospital. Yeah, I you know you could you could. I, I mean, your mind. How much can how much you know can your mind absorb uh, playing double agent? You know, uh, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I've done undercover work, but it's no no comparison. You know, and uh, to what this guy did his his whole life, and especially during World War Two, I would have to. You know, when I saw that that he had these mental issues, I mean, it was it was understandable. You know. So. Yeah, and they did it for a long time. You know, February 1940, when he arrived in New York, to all the way till July 1941, when the, when the arrests were made. And the, the trial was in September and October of 
1941. So he, he was under a huge amount of pressure. And, you know, of course, he was somebody who didn't ask for this job. Uh, right. You know, it didn't really have a... I mean, I think that some people may have may have gotten into it or, or you know, uh, been thrived in a circumstance like that. I mean, he was obviously very good at it. And I think the reason he was good at it was because he didn't mm. seem like he would be the type to do something like this. But it, it was, I think it was really tough on him. And, you know, people regard, you know, German... Germans would regard him as a, as a traitor. Wow. Well, well, but they were also, like you mentioned before, they were they were vulnerable at that time for somebody. So they probably were a little loose, I would think, in, in doing more of a throw a background on him. So see, yeah, they really needed somebody. Right, they they, exactly. They wanted, wanted to believe he was. They uh, wanted to. Very good, yes. They wanted to. Plus, you had mentioned that we, which we, it's in the book. He was in World War One, and, uh, and during the time Hitler was. So, see how the, sort of the ingredients I would imagine, you know, to yeah. to fit in. But now he didn't have to do this, right, Peter Duffy? I mean, uh, uh, it, it's sort of a, you know, it's I can understand now. Germany is where he was born and raised, and he was in the military there, and then uh, in later life he finds himself, I guess you could say, spying against them. So, uh, how does one do that? How you know, you know, you did the whole pretty much background. How was he able to to do that aside from having mental issues that we know? So it was not easy, I would imagine, right, Peter? Yeah, and I think that um, they there were different points. It was a point where he wanted to quit mm. early on. Um, you know, and the, the the FBI a lot. I had to depend on the FBI files. I got some of his letters, and I spoke. Whoa. Surviving family members, but where he, you know, he came here in, in February 1940, and, and the the FBI immediately scooped him up, mm. brought him down to Foley Square, mm. and 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 um, spoke to him for two days, and that's all it says in the FBI. I thought we spent two days speaking. Oh, told, told them all that was going on, and at the end of two days, he agreed to be what they call a counter spy. Actually, the phrase yes. double agent wasn't even used. You look at all the, the coverage, newspaper coverage. Correct. Trial in, in 1941, they didn't use the phrase double agent. It's a, you know, a later term. It was always counter spot. Hmm. Um, and so it, it, he agreed to be a counter spot, they say. But it, it, he, he, he wasn't, I don't think at all, was an easy character for the FBI to deal with. They had, they, they had a body man, an FBI agent, who basically shattered him hmm. and lived with him early and early in the case. Guy named Ellsworth, Mormon, um, who was basically a you know squeaky clean Boy Scout, and huh. really very conscientious, and knew German from the did his mission in Germany is like the as the Mormons do when he was a young man. So he knew German fluently, and that's one of the reasons why they they uh, right. teamed him up with Seabold. And I think he because he was this he was just a, a very sweet and gentle and really was able to handle Seabald with, with right he didn't appear to, yeah. Yeah. they would never they would never assume uh, that he would be a, a spy or a counter spy like you said they couldn't no no and that's the reason why I think he, he, he they, got over they didn't yeah they got yeah absolutely I think that's the reason why it worked yeah. wound up I mean everybody bought it it was at a certain point in the case deep in the case where there started to be questions. Yes. Um, it's too interesting to me that you know, the story is he winds he slowly, 
Well, he, he comes to the United States with four names <laughs> of German agents work, working in the United States. He has a, <laughs> and he is assigned to meet with them and to begin receiving intelligence for them and then and transmitting that intelligence back to Germany. Wow. Slowly, he starts hearing from them about other agents and the amount of German spies he's dealing with grows and grows, and, and until we wind up getting to, to 35, 33, sorry, mm. and um, there was actually with 34 he was dealing with, and the 34th was a, was an Irishman named Connolly, Sean Connolly, mm. and Connolly was the guy who said there's something that's right about him. Um, the Germans, because Seabold was German, was was a World War One veteran, spoke mm. their language, you know, was in every way, you know, completely believable and acceptable. The Germans, uh, uh, the Germans had no problem, but it was the Irish guy who came in and said something, made, something <laughs> about this ain't right. <laughs> and actually, he's the one that didn't get arrested. He's the one that got away. Whoa! Now, what do you think? Reading between the lines, do you think he? Uh, I think he knew something. He yeah. knew something was up, and he made himself scared. Okay. You know, and, and who knows what happened to him? I mean, who knows? Yeah. Unconscious. Okay. Yeah. Connolly, so it's tough to find somebody named Sean Connolly. <laughs> uh, exactly, right, especially in Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. Now, why, how did, why did we trust him? Why did J. Edgar Hoover, who was head of the FBI at that time, why did he trust that now, uh, see, uh, it, to me, if I was the head of uh, a group of FBI people, I would, it would be kind of hard for me, I, I think, here's a guy, not to be repetitious, again, World War One, Hitler, German, uh, from Germany. How how are we able to trust him, Peter Duffy? Yeah, we there was a lot of concerns about that 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 he that he was pulling a ruse on us. Yes, at first, and then they were very very wary about about all of that. Um, but I think, in, in probably in a lot of ways, it was his hmm. the fact that I think once these guys met him, they realized that he he just didn't come off that way and was believable and. and he was such an—he was kind of an oddball, you know. Right. Was, um, um, I don't think he was smooth <laughs> in the lead and um, halting. And you know, he, he, one of the agents was a was a femme fatale. You know, one of the German agents was a young oh. woman who whose job was to you know chat up uh, English and British and American sorry British and American officers here in nightclubs in New York and try to get secrets out of them. And, and um, she was told that you know he's a the Germans told him she, he's a funny-looking fellow, but he, mm. he's okay. So I mean, I think they all kind of looked like he's a funny. He's very tall and thin, and um, with big jug ears. Wow. And, um Yeah. So he, I think it, at first they were very, very careful, but it, as time went on, they realized that he was on the level. Yeah, they were. Well, very weird. Yes. The movie's uh, going to be weird when they make it. When is the movie coming out? Uh, do you, well, they they. they uh, you know, Dun- the fact that the movie Dunkirk and um, oh. Oh, and the Winston Churchill movie have just been nominated for for Oscars that yes. helps uh, help my this this project. There, there's mm. a there's a screenplay been written and, and um, the shopping around right. studios shopping it around to get it. Peter, is that from your the screenplay? Is that as a result of your book? Yeah, yeah. I didn't write the screenplay, but but, but based on yeah. Interesting. Now, uh, well, definitely he didn't look like John Wayne, you know. So, but yet, yeah. uh, but so that that pretty much that pretty much helped him. But also, you, you the, the bun that you 
touched on a moment ago, is that uh, they were very active here in New York. In fact, 1939, I think they had a tremendous rally right here in the Madison Square Garden in New York. The German yeah, Bund, right. right? Yeah, 22,000 22, people filled yeah. the garden at the, the old garden. The old garden, um, of course. On, on what, 48th Street? The, right. The, um, um, yeah, and you know, that was, a, lot of, a lot of people cite that, the, that 1939, February yes. 39 rally, and you know, the swastikas hanging from the rafters of the garden. It's pretty amazing. Right. And really, basically a Nuremberg rally, a mini Nuremberg oh. rally in the, in the garden. And But that wasn't the only, actually, that was about the third or fourth time they'd, they'd done that. And earlier in the, in the 30s, the Bund, or the earlier version of the Bund, which is the Friends of Germany, yeah. um, had, amazing. had rally, rally gar, uh, garden rallies. Hmm. Um, yeah, they marched up and down, uh, as I say, 86th Street, and then there were the summer camps out in uh, Long Island. Correct. And also over in New Jersey, hmm. uh, there was one. Um, and, you know, as the decade went on, and that, that 39, that 1939 rally, the NYPD presence was outside that rally, and inside the rally was the largest they had had at that point of any public event. Right. They, that was, that was written in the papers at the time. I don't know if that's true, but, Huge police presence because it was there was protests and and fist fights out front you know all night. Mm. Yes, and, and I believe it or not, I spoke to some uh, retired uh, actually correction officers who uh, worked in the old they worked in the jails in Manhattan, and they uh, they had a double edged shift. They couldn't go home because they would had so that as a result of the uh, the. Uh, disorderly conduct and uh, all those incidents outside the garden and there was a lot of people that were arrested they had to you know fill up the vans and some of the old time cops that I, I that uh, actually were present believe it or not the, you know during those uh, during those uh, rallies interesting you know but uh, yeah they're right here in Long Island it's just, it's just amazing but uh, so uh, my guest is Peter Duffy and uh, the uh, the book is double agent, but I guess in that time, like Peter had said, that they were actually, a, he was a counter spy. Uh, William mm-hmm. G. Siebold, his real name was probably Wilhelm, I think he said, correct? Yeah. Wilhelm? Mm-hmm. Is, uh, like, by the way, that's the name of our Mayor de Blasio. That's his real name, Wilhelm. I don't, I yeah. guess you know that, right? That's true, yeah. Yeah, that's his, I think he, Siebold was named after the Kaiser. The Kaiser. The Kaiser, Wilhelm. Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Doing that, and again, it's going back. So, uh, I, you know, I usually open the phones at, uh, five o'clock. I'll give the number out anyway, 631-888-8811. That's 631-888-8811. If you want a, a statement or question for, for my guest, great author Peter Duffy. And, uh, you, you, you know, you have another book that's, uh, that's pretty uh, sort of uh, during the the uh, same era, which is, you know, I've heard of these uh, Belinsky brothers. Did not know you wrote a book on it, you know, until I was doing some uh, research. And that's another great, interesting story. But before I get to Belinsky uh, brothers, uh, also doing World War II, why why did you why did you choose to uh, to do a book on uh, Will, on William Seabold, uh, Peter? Or do his story? Um, I think, uh, you know, I think a, because of uh, his, the idea that a single guy uh, was responsible for the biggest FBI, mm. uh, espionage bust in history still to this day. 
and uh, and the idea that there was no recognition for this. No recognition for this one guy. I mean, it wouldn't have happened without him. The FBI was really learning how to do this. They, they, oh. they had not. This was basically the second spy case in FBI history. In the first, they had uh, bungled pretty badly a year earlier. Tell the story in the book, and uh, they they I mentioned Ellsworth. Jim Ellsworth, who was the Seabolt's FBI right. handler, the guy who, who uh, hmm. shadowed him for every day of this case, he, he I think he had 10 days of training in espionage in uh, hmm. Washington. So they, they really, it was an entirely different world. Right. The, the United States was extremely isolationist hmm. in those days. We hadn't wanted nothing to do with, with European uh, fights. And so we were, there was a lack of preparedness. Wow, about. amazing. That the, but the idea that, that we would have a, agents working in this country, we just weren't interested amazing. in it because yeah. nobody, nobody really wanted any part of it. Um, Peter, we're going to take a quick break. Hang on, please. Uh, the phones are ringing now. Let's see if I'll take them. But you, I, I, just, I have to talk about your other two books because they're great and interesting. And uh, anyway, my guest, Peter Duffy. Lutzelana, hang on. Peter, hang on. And, and the audience, please hang on. You'll hear more of uh, these great uh, real stories. This is WGBB AM 1240 and W240 DF FM 95.9 Freeport, New York. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. This is a world of possibilities. A world in which people who put their minds to something can really make a difference. My goal is to help the environment. Someday, I'll find a cure for cancer. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we believe that aspiring minds can achieve anything. So we dedicate ourselves to making sure everyone has an opportunity to go to college. Each year, we provide more than $150 billion in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about Money for College at studentaid.gov. Uh, Lou Talano, and I'm back with Streetwise, and I'm back with my guest, Peter Duffy. Double Agent is his book. I do have a caller, Peter, on the line. I have to tell you this. She is a great fan of your book and you. And I know that because I'm reading what she just said to the engineer. Johanna, you yes, have... Hi, a, how are you? Uh, okay, I, you're, I'm fine. And uh, uh, your question or statement for... Uh, yes, hi, Peter. Great book. Um, I just want to ask you, um, couldn't anything more have been done for Mr. Siebel you know, to create a better life for him instead of being abandoned by our government? Mm. And um, I just want to know how many... Uh, are you aware of how many more unsung heroes are there? And the last thing that I want to ask you is, uh, or have the public know that the arrest of the 33 spies uh, which you said was the largest espionage case, and I think it happened before, just hours before Hitler declared war on the United States, and uh, that was so important because it meant that the Fuhrer could not use any more spies in the United States, and it prevented him from further, you know, invasion of the United States. Wow, great questions, Peter. Um, thank you, Johanna. Thank you. Yes, great to hear from you, Johanna. The um um, could the government have done more? You know, it's, it's an it's an interesting question. The um, 
the the government did they as I mentioned they they helped him get set up in California after after his service during the during this case and they it, you know there were certain things they did help him with I think occasionally they did give him money um, but they they basically left him on his own um, and they would check on him he often would call and say come out here and I want to talk to you guys about something. Mm. Um, he, he wound up being cut out of any, um, um, there was a film made called The House on 92nd Street, which is yes. roughly, um, um, based on the case. It, it includes some other cases, uh, uh, as well, but it's based, you know, very roughly based on this case. But mm. it, the, the character that's based on Seabold that they completely, instead of being a German born immigrant who, uh, you know, becomes naturalized and, very, very German. He sent the double agent becomes this guy, well, college student. You know, they show him like on the track team with his, with his track uniform on. You know, uh, a completely different kind of <laughs> character. So, um, but he he was very upset about that when the movie came out, and he was, he was given no. He saw no monetary uh, assistance from that, um, and the FBI made, made out like bandits. You know, they had, it was very very. Uh, yeah. Hoover made a big deal about this case throughout the war. He, there was a newsreel, newsreel that was made that was shown before films in, uh, you know, throughout the country where it would be about two, two and a half minutes of, of Jagger Hoover describing this case, describing Seabolt. Right. Using his, his cover name, they didn't use his real name. Um, so the, he would, Seabolt wound up getting very upset about this, that they, that the FBI was making out and, being made and he saw nothing from it. Um, but he was very difficult to deal with and he had a hard time at a certain point keeping jobs. You know, he had a hard time at the post office but he couldn't keep the job. Mm. He wound up having a lot of mental health problems and his wife you know, eventually would call the FBI and the FBI helped get him committed to the, to the oh. state hospital. Amazing. So that's a tough question. I'm, I'm not well, sure what, what they could have done for him. Um, you know, it kind of it seems as though he wasn't the best thing they could have done for him is if it never had happened, he probably would have lived to happen. Yeah. He thought, uh, yes, uh, it's sad, but that's, uh, again, like Johanna said, the unsung, unsung hero. I think we got another caller on the line. Oh, we don't? Okay. Uh, change, I guess they, uh, maybe, uh, Johanna's question, you probably, uh, I, I would think you answered. Now, during World War Two, the, uh, other song, uh, unsung heroes were the Polinsky brothers and, uh, Three of them, and uh, that's a great book by you. Uh, it's a true story about these. There were three brothers, uh, and who defied the Nazis and built a village in a forest and uh, saved the lives of uh, 1,200 Jews during World War II. How did you research that, uh, Peter Duffy, and your other book, The Belinsky Brothers? Yeah, it was it's the as the Belsky brothers actually. Belsky, Belsky, I'm sorry, Belsky. Okay, C-I-E, very good, thank you. And there, there are still out there. Family members are still out there in Long Island. Wow. In Brooklyn, um, the yeah, that story began. I wrote a, a story for the New York Times about about survivors from this this group, and was, uh, the story is set in in the former Soviet, what is today the former Soviet Western Belarus, White Russia, when the Germans invaded Soviet Union in 1941, you know, right about the time when the arrests were made in the Bill Seabold case in the United States. Mm. 
um, June 1941. I, was, I remember the day, but June 22nd, 1941 is when they learned the Soviet Union. At that point, they Wow. Now, the Belsky brothers, they were actually brothers that living in that in that area or town? Yeah. Yeah, three, three main brothers uh, hmm. lived, uh, who formed this, this group, uh, a, a resistance and rescue group wow. that uh, went to the forest in that what? part of the world and, and saved Jews. Hmm. Now, what, uh, were they German or were they uh, Jewish? Were they, they were Jewish. They were Jewish. Jewish. And living, living in... in uh, Part of the part of the world that at various points have been Lithuania, various points Poland, uh-huh. at various Got points of Tsarist mm. Russia. Um, it was it was um, the Soviet Union when yes. Germans invaded. Wow, uh, I got Richie on the line. Richie, you're on a question for Peter Duffy or a statement. Go ahead, Richie. Uh, Peter, I wanted to ask you: Is there any? You may have covered it earlier. I may have missed it. Are there any Nazi parties today in the United States and? different parts of the world, to the best of your knowledge, because I see you did an extensive investigation on it mm-hmm. and research, and I figured you would know better than most. Sure. Well, you know, I'm mostly, I'm very much concentrated on the 30s, 40s in this one, so, you know, I think there are definitely Nazi sympathizers, you know, I still do research. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm not sure how organized they are these days, and, you know, I, I, there are a lot of other people who know that better than I, but, you know, you go, I, I am still doing work on this era, uh, doing uh, mm. research and writing on this era of the 1930s. And, you know, you, when you look at, uh, go on to YouTube and look at Hitler's speeches or whatever, if I have to do, mm. do something for research, you, the, the comments can be pretty startling. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people out there who are, are very sympathetic. Right. Hitler, but okay. I, I'm not, you know, I haven't done any reporting on, you know, what, what exists today, so I'm sorry. I understand. But I just want to wish you a pretty happy birthday on February 22nd. Oh, gosh. Thanks very much. No, and, and the reason I know it, because that's oh. the birthday of WOR Radio, was the same birthday as you, except a few years before you were born. That was 1922 was the first broadcast with Al Jolson. Wow, look at wow. that. Richie's nostalgia, right? A little history. Yes. <laughs> but your history yeah. is a hell of a lot better than mine. Thank mm. you, Peter. That was a great interview, and I appreciate your books. Well, thanks so much. Thanks, uh, thank you, Richie. But you know, I, I think what Richie's talking about, we got these so-called uh, wannabes. They call themselves, or we, or some people call them Nazis. You know, they don't have a clue. You know, they're right. in, usually the Western states, maybe down south. Uh, you know, they put the Nazi signal on, and they uh, they do the saluting, and they got portraits of Adolf Hitler, but they don't have a clue. They they just. Uh, they're just ill people, <laughs> you know, or losers. I think they're just losers, and uh, they're not real Nazis. And people refer to them as Nazis, but they're not Nazis. They just make believe want to be, in my opinion, you know. And uh, so, but it's interesting, but it's a good question. And what would a, what, a, what would a group of Nazis do today, anyway? You know, we have enough to worry about with uh, the terrorists, you know, around the world, and uh, I feel. You know, and, but anyway, so with the, but the, uh, the Belsky brothers, right, they, uh, how were they able to, uh, avoid the Nazis themselves? Um, they, you know, one thing about them is that they grew up in a very rural setting and they were very comfortable in the, in the woods, yeah. in the, the back country. And they, they were all horsemen. 
And what the Germans did is they, they trapped the Jewish population in the cities, and they would mm. create ghettos in the cities, and they would then pull Jews from the surrounding areas into those uh, ghettos in the cities. And the Zelskis were very easily able to maneuver away from that. They were uh-huh. very comfortable in the countryside. They knew all the languages, you know, multi-language, whether it's uh, Poles, who obviously spoke Polish, or Belarusians speaking Belarusian, and they knew all, knew all those languages. They could live kind of by their wits in the countryside. And when, as the situation grew worse for the, for the Jews in that area, they realized that they, they, they could be uh, leaders of a, of a, of a group that could exist in the, in the woods uh, by saving people. So they created this basically a movable village in, in the woods. Movable. And what, what, uh, what, uh, what would that be called? Would that still be in Poland or in Ukraine? Where, where would that be, that area that they were able to do this? Today it's Belarus. Belarus. Wow. Belarus. Belarus. From 1921 to 1939, it was, it was Poland. 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 Mm. When the, the uh, Hitler-Stalin pact was was reached, then Stalin marched in, and it became the Soviet Union in '39. And then, then, then obviously, right. Hitler came in in '41, so it was at that point. Uh-huh. Very much kind of a borderland. Traditionally, been a borderland. Uh, well, so all its neighbors, basically. So Joseph, Joseph Stalin, and with the Soviet Union, was was like also close to being another Adolf Hitler in his own right, right? Trying to grab what oh, they yeah. could. Yep. And, uh, I, I, you know, see, I, I have an interest in that myself, although I have an interest in so many different things. But anyway, but what you, you, you mentioned to Richie, uh, you're still focusing on the 30s and 40s. Why, why, uh, why that era? And especially during the era of pre-World War II and World War II? Um, you know, I think that, I mean, I don't, Joanne asked the question about are there other unsung heroes? Yes. You know, I'm I'm interested in the people who were who were who were anti-Nazi uh-huh. at, at, during those moments. And you know, and a lot of times it isn't. You know, it's very easy for um, uh, you know, once there have been 500 books about Winston Churchill. You know, yeah. He's generally generally regarded as somebody who stood up very early because he was stood up very early against Hitler. A lot of people were saying, "Ah, there's nothing to worry about." Huh. Um, but he, you know, he wasn't the only one, and there was there. A lot of them are people who were normal, regular citizens, and uh, had nothing. You know, they didn't go to the best schools, let's say, and they didn't. Right. They didn't have the credentials. You could never imagine, say, before the war came, that all oh, these were the people who would who would stand out. Bill Siebel mm. is an example of that. He was the guy no one before the war. No, Look at him and say, well, "There's absolutely nothing that makes him different than anybody else." In fact, he may even may even be worse than other people. He may be somebody who wouldn't do to mm. stand up when this happened. But in fact, right. he, when the, when the time came, he, he did. Stood up. Belskis were basically Belsky brothers were or Bielski brothers were basically you know, Jewish rednecks mm. who uh, <laughs> who were uh, uh, you know they were. There were, all, there were rumors about them before the war. One of the brothers might have did he he killed somebody or something. You know, there was always a there was they, they weren't you know ready for polite company. Let's say correct, you know, correct. Were, they were tough guys. They were extremely tough guys. Yeah. And they and they um, well you know before the war you look at them like oh these are troublemakers you know I'm not Got gonna it. I'm gonna steer steer clear of them. The war comes 
You want to survive, and you're surviving in the midst of an apocalypse. You need those guys. The guys, to, the guys to go with. So I'm still interested in right. in in writing about the you know it's kind of the rednecks and crazies and nut jobs that, that fly against. Yeah, like my, my project. I think. Well, no, no, great. You know, so there was uh, similar here, right here in America, with the mafia. How the mafia were pretty much got involved in World War II, helping the Allies, cultivating information right here in the New York waterfront. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with that. You know, right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how they used some, some uh, like Lucky Luciano, top. Yes, right. Ooh, they used him. Uh, to, you know, as a result, because we were involved in Sicily or Italy at the time, so it, 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 there's a place. It seems like, right, uh, Peter? There's a there's a a place for for uh, wise guys, tough guys, and bad guys when we have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think when something something really happens, serious and and world changing, you don't know how how people are going to respond, and sometimes it's the most it's the most surprising people that right. Step up. Wow. Are you going to do? I just threw that out. Is, is there a, that could be an interesting story too? How the the New York gangsters were instrumental and also used their network to find out what was going on in uh, you know in in Italy, I should say at the time, because that's where the action was with the, the Nazis. So, but yes, it's true. You know, I I'm not sure that I, I'll do it. I there has been a lot written, written <laughs> yeah. on, on Lucky Luciano. You know the the thing on the FBI and the Seaball thing it was though it, it does remind you in some ways of a of a mafia case because Seaball yeah. had to had to convince them that in a sense he was like another guy from the neighborhood. You know, oh, right. you can trust him. He's 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 one of us. And I assume that I imagine I'm, I have researched this, but I've seen the movies. You know the the uh, double agent right. uh, goes into a, a circumstance like that has to convince, or you know, someone who's turned been a member of the organization or turned has to, has to do an acting job to convince. Mm. Uh, you know, that uh, yeah, I'm, I'm part of you. I'm part. I'm part. Everything about me is above board, and you can trust me. So I think there are actually similarities between a, a lot of similarities between a gangster case and a yeah. Absolutely. My guest is Peter Peter Duffy, and the book is Double Agent, which actually means counter spy. From from way back, he's got the Belsky Brothers, uh, which is a, a great book. And then the other one is uh, in regard to the uh, 1840, the Great Potato Famine, when uh, the Irish were coming here. They were coming. Uh, by the way, I just want uh, as um, the influx came in, there was a. Uh, uh, the book is The Killing of uh, Dennis Mahan. Am I pronouncing his name? Mahan or Mahan? Mahan, of course. Mahan. Mahan. Uh, Mahan. Irish. Yeah, Mahan. But I, I have to say this, is that I don't know if you know what you probably, you probably do. When the Irish first came to New York, especially in Manhattan, Lower East Side, where you're familiar with, your neighborhood, I'm saying your neighborhood, was a great predominantly Irish area. Do you know that, Peter Duffy? Oh, oh sure. You did sure. know it. Yes. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, figure that. Back in the 19th century, yeah. Uh, yes. Well, actually, in the, when you say 19th century, besides that, it was during the uh, uh, 50s, too, by the way. 40s, 50s, and 60s. It started to change in the, the, the 50s, you know. But around uh, that area, uh, Gouverneur Street, I mentioned earlier when we spoke, uh, before we went on the year, uh, Madison Street, Jackson Street, 
uh, you know, that whole area, East River Drive was predominantly Irish immigrants that came over from, uh, you know, as a result of the, the famine that your book talks about, you know. So, how do you, now that's something different. I mean, now, that, but also sort of a little spy story there with the, uh, uh, who killed Dallas, uh, Mahan? Who, who did? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's Kim, uh, you know, this is a big case in, in 19th century Ireland where during the midst of the, the Irish famine, at the height of it, so, uh, huh. Anglo, Anglo-Irish landlord who had evicted a lot of his starving tenants. Yeah. Uh, was assassinated in, in, uh, in his big trial in, in Ireland. Um, I used that case to describe what, what it was like living in those days. What wow. The circumstances were. And it, it, it was a, a bit of a mystery of who actually did the killing. Still an open case, by the way. Still an open case. So mm. if you want to, <laughs> no, I'm, reti- I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give that to the cold case squad. You know. So, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> interesting, interesting case. But uh, I know there's like a theme there, like a little common denominator that I notice in, in your books. You know, to uh, certain things you grab and you do. By the way, you do very well. I mean. Uh, you know, whatever that means, you know. So, and uh, I've interviewed so many authors uh, during my many years of doing this. But this is uh, books that this are, these are stories that grab me. From you know, from uh, you know, it, it should grab because you know it's it's history. You know, and a lot of people don't realize. Uh, well, you know, people are crying and yelling. Ah, you know, with the immigration thing that's going on now and the, the DACA stuff. People don't realize what people had to go through to come to this country. It wasn't that easy, you know. Uh, when they talk about ancestors, grandparents came. It wasn't that, like, it just walked into, it was, you know, I mentioned this before, they had to come through Ellis Island. They didn't just walk here, you know. And, uh, including the Irish, Italians, the Polish, the Germans, everybody, they had to go through Ellis Island and they were screened. And, uh, I could think of an uncle of mine that was sent back. He was sent back. You know, he didn't walk. He didn't just walk over the line, you know. So, because he had a cough. He had a cough. And uh, they couldn't take a chance on those years, turn of the century, the last century. So, with uh, so it was not e- it was not easy. And, and I know the Irish, when uh, they had the famine, and everybody's, everybody has a tough history. You know, it's just, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's great to have someone like you, Peter Duffy, that you like to... to you know, uh, to like people could, who uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners that are unaware of some things that we're talking about, you know. And, uh, but uh, again, I gotta ask you this, I might have said it a moment ago, but what grabbed the common denominator, I think it's, I think is obvious, but why did you yourself, you know, uh, sort of target these three, three different books? Do you have another book, by the way, coming out? Size? Um, yeah, I am working on another one now. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the common there, there are. It probably, as you say, it's better for some somebody else to see common denominators. I know I, I, I'm writing about moments, history, these stories that mm-hmm. are, as I alluded to earlier, that you know I'm not writing about Churchill or FDR oh. or wow. you know the Queen Victoria, or whatever. I'm, I'm more interested mm. in actually these people that are are not household names they're not they're not uh, people who anybody has really ever heard of but they lived at a 
Right. Moment in history, they witness, they witness a lot. Amazing. It's worthwhile looking at at what they have gone through, you know, and I think that's that's something that's not often done. You know, we focus on that. Right. No, not at all. But there's been several several uh, stories, and 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 I would think movies on Winston Churchill, which you mentioned a moment ago. It's out now. That. You know, another, another, I guess, but we knew him. We knew he was a hero. At least I would think he was a hero. Yeah. So yeah. during that, during that period of time, he was a tough guy in his own right. You know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so, I mean, he stood against the entire world was falling, falling apart and he was basically the British, British were the only one standing at that, that moment in 1940. Right. Yeah. Right. You listen to those speeches in there, they're, Pretty stirring. I, I I haven't seen it, but I just can't wait to to see it. Maybe even talk about it on, on the show here. You know, so uh, uh, amazing. Aside from being an author, what uh, if you want? If you know, can I ask you what do you you know? Aside from that, you know, uh, aside from being an author, what you what have you done? I should say, or, or your occupation? I guess I would say. Or um, yeah, well, I work as a writer, you know, and so I do. Uh, you know, the books, my books these days are, are more my, uh, personal projects. You know, I work as a writer and I work, write for a lot of different people and I write speeches and I write reports, um, work for, uh, for NGOs, uh, uh, that are trying to improve policies and, for example, the United Nations, trying to oh. make the United Nations live up to its charter. Um, that's one of, uh, so I do a lot of different kinds of writing is what my profession is. So were you ever a, a reporter or a journalist? Yes, I worked as a, of course, absolutely. Thought so. Yeah, definitely. Worked yeah, as definitely. a reporter for, for years and, you know, occasionally yeah. I still do a journalist, a freelance journalist, so I do pieces. I do book reviews. Right. Um, um, you know, and I started out covering fires and murders and stuff. Hmm. Very good. I'll have to, when I when I do my uh, second book, I uh, there was a book written about me, my partner, but that goes back to the seventies. But uh, since that time, we've been talking about doing the second book. My my partner is gone; I passed away. But people were asking me to do a you know a book now. So if, if I if I do it, but I've been saying this for twenty years, I'll I'll, I'll ask you to do a review on it. Absolutely. <laughs> Keep me on your list for sure. <laughs> you know, so uh, yes, uh, I will. It's about uh, it touches New York, touches the gangsters, it touches crime, and you know, and, uh, and some undercover things. So it's a touch of that, you know, and the change, the change in the police department of uh, before me, during my time, and now after. It's completely different, different uh, jobs, uh, as uh, they say. You know, uh, folks, you gotta look, you have to, double agent book, you gotta get it, and, uh, you know, the Belsky brothers, the un- unbelievable, a lot of Jewish people out there, you gotta buy this book, I'm telling you, uh, listen to me, you get a break if you use my name, you know, so, uh, and, <laughs> and the, uh, the mystery of how do I get this? What's uh, with yeah, the mystery yeah. of the uh, major Dennis Mahan, right? Mm-hmm. Who, was, who was probably assassinated, like you say. Three great books, you know. With just a, uh, I, I, I'll tell you, as uh, 
been involved because I've, I've done some television too and radio other stations before and uh, so and I, I do have to really uh, I got it whatever whatever it means I, I have to commend you on that there's three great outstanding books you know people uh, I, I know authors that write books in 15 minutes you know and uh, there's so much work people you got to understand you know as a f- former detective you have to uh, what it takes you know to do the research and the background is just mind-boggling. I have to credit. I hope you don't wind up uh, having issues, mental problems from doing all this research yourself. You know, like uh, like W. G. Seabold. I'm just kidding, of course. You know, but uh, how does it affect you? You know, good question for myself. How does it affect you doing all this research and finding out things that you didn't know yourself? Well, the research is the is the fun part. Uh-huh. Finding all of the the facts and going through the papers and letters and all that is is the fun part. The hard part is trying to make it all coherent. Yes. And on the page, that's that's, that's where the that's where the tough stuff happens. So well, yeah, the research is all fun for me. Oh, good, good. I, I can see it. It's fun for me talking about it. It's fun for me looking through your book and I. I have to browse through or look through or try to read it if I can, the other two books. But I'm telling you folks, you guys out there and people out there, you have to check these books out. And, uh, you know, it was such an interesting, uh, era of pre-World War II and during World War II. Uh, anyway, Double Agent by uh, Peter Duffy. Is your book available online? Oh, your absolutely. Books? Yeah. You know, Amazon. Probably the easiest way. Amazon, easy way. Oh, great. Amazon people, the, the killing of uh, Dennis Mahon, uh, the Belsky brothers, and of course, double agent, which means during my time, because that's what we used to call them also, counter spies, you know. So, mm-hmm. Peter Duffy, I want to thank you for being my guest. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Thanks so much, Lou. Yeah, you, you know, and good luck in, uh, keep me up to date what you're doing in your, in your next uh, book. You know, but I'll I'll follow you anyway. So definitely, I will, I will absolutely do that. Uh, thank you, Peter. My guest was Peter Duffy, great uh, great author of several books. Uh, thanks for listening to uh, Streetwise. This is Lou Talano, and I'll catch you later. been listening to Streetwise on the station that serves your community, WGBB AM 1240.